<laughs> get us start. Are you guys hot? I see some ladies fanning really heavily. Um, I don't have climate control control, but those magical people in the booth, they, they can make you cooler. <laughs> Hard to make some of you cooler, but we're going to try. <laughs> uh, what I've said each week in this series, uh, past four weeks, is that what I came to realize is that in order for a human being to get the most out of situations like this, times like this, where uh, what we call church services, where somebody that hopefully is gifted and equipped to unpack God's word so that God can speak to his people, in order to get the maximum benefit out of this time, I don't want you to waste your time is what I'm trying to say. And so when I was off with the surgery on my shoulder and I was thinking about a lot of things, and I got clarity on this, this is the difference in my opinion. If you want to have the maximum experience every time you are gathered in a place like this, here's the things you need to address. Why are you here? Now, I know that might seem obvious, but what I'm trying to say is this. If you're here for any other reason than this next statement, uh, then you may not get the maximum benefit out of being here. Are you here seeking to hear from God? If you want for the rest of your life to maximize your experience in places like this. You've got to come in to a place like this saying, God, I don't really care what else happens here today. I want to hear from you. I want you to speak to me. I want to understand you. Speak to me today. Second part of this is equally important. Are you eager and open to whatever the Lord wants you to consider today? That's hard for us because we're subjective. We go through various things in life. We have things on our minds, so we kind of want to hear a word that's going to pertain directly to what we are going through. But a lot of times, the God who knows us best and loves us more than we love ourselves, he knows we need to be thinking about something entirely different so that some kind of a core level awakening or healing might take place. And so... Are you willing, not just to have God speak to you today, but are you willing to have God speak to you today about anything at all? Are you eager and open even to hear him speak to you today about something you don't like? First service, I found out there were parts of this talk today people don't like. How many of you know you're going to be different? You're going to like the whole thing, right? <laughs> you're not a rebellious bunch like they were. Had they had stones, I might have a bruise or two. So uh, we'll see how you react. <laughs> All right. Now your attitude, your heart, your mind are prepared. Uh, I'm going to turn the corner, start aiming toward our message. Now in this series, what we've said is this, is that we've stayed in the book of 2 Corinthians. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, you have some interesting things that occur. You have these little snapshots, these spiritual snapshots where God who knows us best, loves us most, looks inside of us, we that have been reconciled to him, we that have trusted Christ and are following him, he looks inside and he sees things we don't see. Scripture says God looks at the heart, he looks inward, man looks on the outward appearance. And he wants us to see what he sees so that we can be what he knows we can be. So we started out in this series in chapter one, we, we found this picture that God sees his people as wounded healers. You have a unique ability based on your wounds, your experiences you've processed to come alongside somebody else with the same kind of wounds and bring, bring God's healing to them. That's a tremendous thing to be able to do. The second week we learned that, that you are a competent minister. Now most of us don't even feel like ministers. You say, you're a minister, but we're not ministers. No, but you are ministers and you're competent. You're competent, the scripture says, because we have this message the truth about God and the truth about life and the world is aching for truth. 
Third week, we learned that we carry this message, this treasure, in jars of clay. We feel like sometimes being finite, being flawed, being fragile, that this works against us in serving God. But the scripture says just the opposite, that we're the perfect vessels in our brokenness to present this treasure to the world. Now, today we're going to find that God looks at us and he sees inside of us, he calls us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Now, we're going to unpack this a bit more, but let's go for now to uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, and that'll be page 1303 on those Bibles in the New Year on the chair. We've been in 2 Corinthians through this entire series. You know, for you that want to know a little bit more, you know, this, this book was written, it's, it's a gathering of people in the city of Corinth. The Apostle Paul, about five years earlier, had gone into the city Preach to people about Christ, the truth about God, the truth about life. People trusted in Christ, became his follower. Then they gathered, just like we are gathered here, to be churches, to learn and to grow and to serve God and go on. And, and Paul, after planting the church, he's writing back to them. And that's how we get these books, some of these books in the New Testament. All right, let's pick up in chapter 5, verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us since we have concluded this. That Christ died for all, therefore all those, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. So from now on, we acknowledge no one from an outward human point of view, even though we have known Christ from such a human point of view. Now we do not know him in that way any longer. I'm going to pause there for a minute. So he starts out saying, you know, the love of Christ controls him because when he looks out at people, he says, I recognize Christ died for everyone that I'll ever see. And Christ doesn't look at people the way that we measure and look at people. What he sees is important. We, we don't necessarily see as important. And so let me ask you a question. How important are you? I, I'm sincere. How important are you? Let me do it differently. It might be easier to, to address. How important do you feel? Do you walk through your days? Do you walk through your weeks? Do you, you feel important wherever you go, whatever you do? Does it even matter? Does it, does it affect the quality of a human being's life if they walk through life feeling important or unimportant? Does any of this matter? What we feel, whether we feel important or not. Let, let me go a step further. How, how do you even measure this? How do you measure whether or not somebody's important. I mean, what, what, what does being important look like? I mean, in our society, we can probably conjure up some images pretty quickly. If you're important, you have or you do or people think. Or, but what, is it, what does it look like to be important? Suppose I could take you in a time machine and take you back 1,988 years. Just go with me. We're going to get in the time machine. Back 1,988 years. And if I were to ask you, and ask any of the people that were around 1,988 years ago, if I were to ask them, who's important, man? Who's the most important person alive? They all would have probably said one name. It would have been the individual that was the ruler of the Roman Empire. His name was Tiberius Caesar Augustus. And he ruled over most of the world of his day. And people would have said, he's the most important person in the world. He has tremendous power over just about everyone on earth. But how many of you would have even known that name? Is there anybody here that would have even known that 1988 years ago, Tiberius Augustus Caesar 
was considered the most powerful man in the world. How many would have known that name? Be honest now, be honest, don't fool me. How many would have known that name and you wouldn't have known? Can I see your hands? Oh, I don't believe you. <laughs> but a few of you, very few of you. And yet he was considered the most important person of his day. Now I want to take you on a trip, some geography. I want to take you from Rome, from Caesar's palace. I want to take you 1,443 miles toward the east. I want to take you to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, it's just a typical day. The Romans are executing criminals. They, they executed them pretty regularly. Anybody that, that threatened the Roman Empire in any way, shape, or form, they executed. So here's one criminal after another being executed. And they had a kind of a cruel way of executing criminals in those days, the ones that were really dangerous to the empire. They stuck them on a stake, a wooden stake, and they hung them there until they died. We call it crucifixion today. And so on this particular day, 1988 years ago, people are being taken and crucified. But there's this one particular individual who's dragging his stake along. And he looked anything but important. He's dragging his stake to die. He can't even control the next 24 hours of his life. His life's going to be taken away. He looks anything but important, but every single one of you know his name. Every single one of you. Two billion people today know his name and will at least say they give their adherence and loyalty to him. Who is the name? What is the name I'm talking about? Jesus. Jesus. Two people. Who was important? Was Tiberius Caesar Augustus important? Or was this felon on a cross, who was guiltless, named Jesus, important. Who cares about Tiberius Augustus or Caesar Augustus today? Nobody. And there's no reason for you to care. That's why I'm surprised that Howard said he knew who it was. <laughs> but he's a good Bible student. That's probably how he knew. So what makes somebody important? One looked helpless hopeless, fragile, finite, unimportant. And yet, were we to look through history, we couldn't count the numbers. There would be hundreds of thousands. No, there would be millions, maybe, maybe hundreds of millions of people who because of this, this Jewish carpenter dragging his cross through a street that have had their lives, maybe their entire families, dramatically, positively transformed. I am one of them. It continues right on down. It will continue on down to the end of this age. This singular message that the Spirit of God always enforces on people's minds is saying, this is the truth, and you know it's the truth. This is good news. It's very good news. And Jesus turns out to be the most important personage in the universe. Well, he's the creator of the universe so says the scripture. But, but how important are you? Remember? That's where we kind of were at a minute ago. Let me go back to 2 Corinthians and you'll see the significance of this. All right. We ended up in verse 17. We'll pick up there. Or 16 and we'll pick up in 17. So then if anyone is in Christ, meaning once you put your trust in Christ, God sees you as in Christ. You belong to him. You're one with him. So then if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look what is new has come. And all these things are from God who reconciled us. Keep this word reconcile, reconciliation in your mind. You're going to hear it again and again. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who has given us the ministry of what? You say it loud reconciliation in other words 
In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses, that word means sins, against them, and he has given us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are, what is the word? Ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his plea through us, we plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God has made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. I want to share that last verse with you in the, the, common, or the, the Jewish Bible, the complete Jewish Bible. It makes it a little more intelligible. It says, God made this sinless man, meaning Jesus, be a sin offering. Jesus not, did not become sin. There is some terrible teaching about that when Jesus was on the cross that God sort of kind of magically dumped all of my sin and all of your sin and all of your sin just kind of dumped it in him and he became sin personified on the cross. It is not, it is not supported by scripture. Jesus was righteous and holy and good. He did give himself as a sacrifice for sin, a sin offering on, on our behalf so that, so that in union with him, we might fully share in God's righteousness. In other words, the sacrificial death of Jesus, we're going to see this um, unpacked further in this message. It was meant to affect us. It was meant to influence us. It was meant to bring us back into a right standing with God. But Jesus not, did not become sin. He gave himself an offering for sin. Now, in this bit of verses we read, there was one verse in particular that I want to go over, verse 19. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, Paul was talking about himself, but he was talking about every ordinary Christian. So it begs the question, what is an ambassador? Now, when I lived in D.C. for 30 years, I had my own definition of an ambassador. An ambassador was somebody that could break all the parking laws and not get a ticket. <laughs> they could just ignore the laws of the land. But, but a better definition is this one. An ambassador is, what is that word? Important. An important official who works in a foreign country representing his or her own country there. An authorized representative or, what is the word? Messenger. Important. Here this verse says that God peeks at us. He looks inside us, wants us to see what he sees, become who he says we can become. He says, you're an ambassador. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ and you are his follower, you're important. You're important when you feel like it. You're important whether you never feel like it. God looks at you and he says, you are important. Christ didn't look important either, particularly when he was dragging that cross through Jerusalem. He didn't look very important, but boy, does it look different now. And you, me, we, who are those that follow him, we are now called by God to be his ambassadors, his representatives, his messengers. And we have a particular message that he wants us to give to the rest of the world. It's this message of reconciliation. We are literally, it says in verse 20, to plead with people. It says, we plead with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. We're going to pick that term up later. We have a lot of bad terminology in church world these days. We use a lot of terminology that we, really, we think we know what it means, but we really don't even know what it means because we're not, we're not biblical that much anymore. We use things like, oh, you've got to be saved. You've got to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. You've got to, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and we don't even know what the heck we're talking about. Saved from what is my first question. Saved is a good word. It's in the Bible. But saved from what? Most Christians you talk to when you use the term saved, oh, that just means that your, your sins are all forgiven now and you're going to go to heaven. That's nah, not what the Bible teaches 
That's part of it, but it teaches something more specific. Saved from the most dangerous thing, the thing that is more dangerous to you than anything else, more dangerous to me than anything else, saved from, the scripture repeatedly says, sin. So what does that look like? I mean, if I'm saved from sin, what does that look like? Not just the penalty of sin. Saved from sin means that God does such a work in enlightening me, such a work in showing me the truth about how life works and how I'm designed and the truth about himself that, that I change to the point that I see sin in a very different light. If I, if I had a, let's say in this cup, that's not, of course, what I'm going to say, but it, it's actually some really good grape juice. I, I get to drink out of a cup, you just get a little thimble, but it's <laughs> the way it goes. <laughs> Important. <laughs> but let's just say, you know, smoke was flying out of it, and you knew it was like sulfuric acid, deadly, and you knew for sure it was sulfuric acid. And I offered you a drink. How many of you would say, no way, no how? Can I just see your hands? You mean I couldn't tempt you ever? There's no way I could tempt you to drink that. It's really good. <laughs> Don't let the smoke scare you. It's really good. Because you're enlightened. You know some things about your own physiology. You know some things about chemistry. And now no one could ever entice you to drink this. God is going to do, God intends to do, God has started the process of doing through Christ, through his word, a process that's going to so turn the lights on in our hearts and our minds that we will be saved from present tense sin. We will be able to see it, reject it, eliminate it from our lives. That was the purpose of Christ's sacrificial death. It's not about just getting us over the penalty. We picture heaven as this place with a bunch of lawyers arguing it out and saying, oh, and God's kind of wringing his hands and saying, oh, how can I forgive those humans? I want to forgive them, but man, these lawyers are eating my lunch. I, I got to find a way to forgive. Okay, lawyers, I'll, I'll go on earth and pay the penalty so that I can forgive them and not be unjust. That's not taught in Scripture. Something much more powerful was meant to occur by the sacrificial death of Jesus. It was meant to so break the power of sin in mind your life that present tense, we are being saved from sin. Randy, you're talking like a madman. You don't expect us to be sinless perfect in this life, do you? I expect you to want it. I expect you to pursue it because the scripture says that's what Christians do. Now, of course, we're in process. It's a messy process. We discover that we have these things hanging on to us in ways we never dreamt of, but there ought to at least be that pursuit because we see it like that, that cup now. We see it as sulfuric acid. Well, I don't want to keep going back to drink sulfuric acid if I know it's sulfuric acid, right? Plus, now I know that God is completely trustworthy. He's proven that in Jesus by his life, his miracles, and his sacrificial death. All that's included in this. Let me, let me go back to my main point. So now God calls us to be his spokesman. Listen, there is a misunderstanding, a huge misunderstanding about Christianity or what it means to be a Christian and a Christ follower. We kind of think it means, okay, you just got to stop doing bad things. And you do. You need to stop doing bad things. They're not good for us. That's why. And you just do a lot of good things. You know, you be nice to your neighbors and you be good and you pay your bills. And that's all true, all true. 
But God has empowered us and given us a mission. And the mission that you have uniquely, you are empowered for it, is to be an ambassador of reconciliation. That means I must, you must develop this capacity for communication, speech, so that I am able, you are able to go to another human being and do what this passage says, plea with them to be reconciled to Christ. Part of being a Christian is being empowered to be God's messenger. And you are, if you're a Christian. You say, Randy, I'm not good at that, man. I, I get all fumbled up in my words. And, and I don't know. Well, then invite them to church. You can do that. But you can do more. You can learn how to give the simple message of reconciliation to people. We'll talk about that a bit more. All right. So ambassadors are important people, and they're meant to represent another country. Now, here's the country we're meant to represent. Oh, I skipped ahead, but that's okay, Mick. Fear not. It's okay. (laughs) Go back there. In Philippians 3.10, it says, but our citizenship, it's just talking about ordinary Christians, our citizenship is where? In heaven. And we also eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors of heaven. Uh, George Shultz, back in the Reagan, uh, Reagan era, you know, he was the Secretary of State during Reagan's presidency. And uh, when he would assign ambassadors new posts, he had this common practice that he would do. He would uh, call them into his office, and let's say they were being, you know, sent to Brazil. He'd say, okay, you know where your post is? And they said, well, Brazil, George, that's where you said. Yes. See that globe over there? Go over there and point to me, you know, your country. And they would go over to the globe. He said that literally every ambassador he ever, ever, you know, put into practice, they would go over to the globe, and they would find, in this case, Brazil. How many of you are geographically challenged? Own up to it. Okay. They got these cool little globes you can buy, and you put this little sticky, this like a, looks like a pen on it, and it'll say out loud what the country is. And you can learn geography that way. Bought one for my daughter after she had two master's degrees. <laughs> Uh, so they go over and, they, and they'd say what the country was. And every time, George Schultz would then give them a lesson to correct them. He said one time, one time during his entire time of being Secretary of State, he had George Mansfield, who at the time was a majority leader in the Senate, but he was now going to be uh, given the post of ambassador to Japan. And so he had George, uh, Mike Mansfield in his office, and George Schultz said, okay, I want you to go over to the globe, and I want you to show me your country. And Mike Mansfield went over to the globe, and he put his hand right down on, you tell me, the United States. And George Schultz said, that's right. And that's what he did with all those others. When they would pick the nation he was sending them to, he'd say, "Uh uh-uh, your country is the United States. They uh, had a radio interview about this some years later, back in 1993. He was talking, Schultz was talking. He says, I've told that story subsequently to all the ambassadors going out. Never forget You're there in that country, but your country is the United States. You're there to represent us, take care of our interest, and never forget it. And you're representing the best country in the world. I think we have a better country, that being we're citizens of heaven. But an ambassador never forgets who they are representing. This scripture says that ordinary Christians, God sees us, wants us to see ourselves as ambassadors of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. We are those that are going to use this ability to communicate. We're going to develop it so that we can actually speak to another person and say, man, I wish you'd be reconciled to God. Do you have any idea 
how much he loves you? Ever think about the meaning of life? Do you know how much he loves you? Do you know that he's got an eternal purpose for you? Do you know he's got a developmental plan that causes this life to have meaning in every season that there is? Do you know that he offers you forgiveness of all your past failures and sins? Do you know that he's got this eternal dimension just waiting that's going to fulfill your longings, your deepest longings and heart's desires that nothing in this world will ever fulfill? This is kind of the way you make a plea with somebody. To be reconciled to God, saying, oh, man, he loves you. He, he's watched over you all your days. He's brought you here to have this conversation with me, we tell him. And he's pleading with you right now. Will you be reconciled? Will you return to your creator? Now, I'm going to unpack what reconciled means because, again, we have bad terminology today. Um, we think that just believing that Jesus died for us and rose from the grave, that that's all God requires. And he stamps something on a legal document in heaven saying, okay, you've got a passport into heaven. Not what reconciliation, not what reconciliation is about. I've got to go fast. I'm getting, I'm getting lost in, in so many things I want to teach you. Um, let me share a scripture with you from Romans chapter 5. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us. That's kind of reckless love, isn't it? We sing that song, Reckless Love. We had somebody to talk about it. I don't like that title, man. God's love's not reckless. They were right. God's love is not reckless. Uh, I love the song. I think it's a good song. We're going to sing the song. We're going to give the writer, Corey uh, Asbury, poetic license. But God's love is not reckless. It was planned from all eternity. God knew from all eternity before he ever created an angel that is a free-willed being made in God's image or a human free-willed being made in God's image. He knew he knew we were going to misuse our free will. He knew we were going to bring damage into the universe. And he knew that the only thing that could stop it, the only thing that could bring angels and humans to the point where they could never be tempted again to distrust God and to disobey God would be that he'd have to reveal himself sacrificially in Christ to, to stabilize the trust in the universe. He knew that. His love wasn't reckless. His love's very intentional. Now, we sing the song Reckless Love because it's just trying to show that God's love is so different than human love. It's extravagant love and so forth. But um, I kind of want to address that. But you can see, it's always been there. Verse 10 uh, adds on to this. It says, for, even, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled. There's that word again. What does it mean? Reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? Meaning living the life that Christ himself lived, learning to live the way we were designed to live. So we're to be agents, ambassadors of reconciliation, but, but maybe we need to stop for a second and say, what is reconciliation? I mean, I just thought, Randy, you, you, know, you just had to ask Jesus into your heart, and then you get your ticket punch, you go to heaven. It's all God requires. Maybe just, just believe that he exists and he's nice. It's all it requires. Well, what's this reconciliation stuff? I don't get it, man. Reconciled to what? Well, we know that reconciliation or reconciled, these are relational terms, right? It's about, you know, when you've had a brush up with somebody and now you guys are not getting along, something needs to occur so that you're reconciled. You're in harmony again. You're at peace with one another again. You like each other again. You trust each other again. So what kind of a relationship is it that God wants us to be reconciled to? The condition all through Scripture to be saved, if you want to use that term, it's that we have to put our faith or trust, it's a more relational term, in Christ, in God, as he reveals himself fully in Christ. But why? Was it an arbitrary condition or is it a necessary condition? Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. He creates man and woman in his image. 
They're living in the garden. God's there visiting them every day. It's a perfect surroundings, perfect environment. And he's gradually teaching them. Adam and Eve trusted God entirely. They didn't know anybody else. They didn't know any different. He created them. They trusted him entirely and they obeyed him completely because he only gave them one command. Do you remember what it was? He said, hey, look, you, you can have whatever you want in the garden. Just, just don't go eating of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if you eat of the, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die. So, so don't touch that one, but everything else is yours. Things went good. They trusted God entirely. They obeyed him completely. Their life was wonderful. They were growing. They were developing. God was bringing them along. And then we know the story. In the third chapter of Genesis, this this angelic being who had led a rebellion in heaven already, leading one-third of the angels to rebel against God, he appears in the form of some kind of an entity called the Nakash, um, the shining one, the serpent, whatever in the heck he was. We know he was the devil, he was Lucifer, he was the fallen angel. And, and he goes and he strikes up this conversation, and the first thing he says to Eve, he says, hey, you know, so God told you you can't eat of any of the trees. And he says, oh, no, 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 you got that wrong, sir, sir Mr. Serpent. Uh, he said we could eat of... All of the trees, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> he said, if we eat of that one, we'll die. If we even touch it, we'll die, Eve said. She kind of embellished a bit. And so the serpent says, <laughs> you're not going to die if you eat of the knowledge of good and evil. And matter of fact, not only will you won't die, if you eat of that, you'll be just like God yourself. You'll, you'll have the experiential knowledge of good and evil. You, you will be just like God. You see, God's been holding back from you. He wants to keep you under his control. He wants to keep you in ignorance. He's holding you down because he likes the feeling of being over everybody. And if you eat of that, you're going to be his equal. He's lying to you. You are not going to die. Remember the story? Remember? So what do they do? Eve partakes. Adam's there standing like a Dumbo by her side. Never tries to stop her. He partakes. And their eyes are open, or were they? Yeah, they, they were open. And the first thing they felt is fear and shame and guilt. Distrust for one another. Why? Why wouldn't it? Because now they've broken trust with God. Once you, can't, once you know God can't trust you, how can you trust anybody else? Something is unleashed. But they didn't die. And it made Satan look like he was telling the truth and God was a liar. Satan was slandering God. He was saying, God's a liar. He's a power monger. He's holding back from you. He's holding you down. But they didn't die, and it must have made them wonder, huh, huh, who is telling the truth here? Scripture says later on, it says, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. No one has ever lived a thousand years. Methuselah lived 969 years. Adam lived 912 years. Nobody's lived a thousand years. So in God's sight, everybody dies within a day. Because he's an eternal being. But in their minds, Satan looked like he was telling the truth and God looked like a liar. So, when we talk about reconciliation, what has to happen? What, are we, what do we mean? What does the scripture mean across the board? It means that now God has to do something to regain my trust and to convince me I have to have real convictions in myself that sin is my enemy, that it's destroying me. It's not fun. It's, it's not the spice of life. It's my enemy to the point that I now return my free will. I return to 
my creator, and I say, I trust you entirely, and I want to obey you forever. Everything you say to do, I'm going to do. Everything you say stop doing, I'm going to stop because I trust you. God's, that's what it means to be reconciled to God. That's why the scripture says we're saved by faith or trust in Christ. It is relational trust. It is not just trust in a in an event, Jesus' death on the cross was an event. It was the event that's meant to show us we can trust Christ. But just believing in the event is not the same as believing in the person who is the creator, Jesus, and becoming his follower. One is a dynamic relationship. The other is a static belief in a thing that occurred. So reconciliation is life-transforming of necessity. So ambassadors of reconciliation or first of all enlightened to a different perspective we see that since christ died for everybody everybody's important and everybody's maybe reachable we don't know who is and who isn't so we care about all people secondly ambassadors for christ ambassadors of reconciliation are inspired by a different purpose like i said we want to see people reconciled to god i just want to ask you a question if god came to you by name you know he had a little meeting and he said, George, you know, I want to talk to you. If you'll trust me, and for the next five years, you'll put one person on a list every year, and you'll pray for them, and then you'll seek to build a relationship with them, uh, serve them, bless them, and then look for an opportunity to invite them to church or share your, your story with them or, or share the, the, the whole reconciling story of Christ. I promise you, George, you'll, you'll, re, you'll reach that person. And if you do this every year for the next five years, you'll reach five people. Would you do that, George? How many of you, if God came to you and told you that, you would do that? Can I see your hands? Okay. But mind you, that would mean you'd have to take this ability to speak and speak to people. It says we plea with people, be reconciled to God. You'd have to be willing to do that. And to do that, you'd have to figure out, how do I word this? How, how do I, how do I tell? You, you could play this message back and get some of the pieces. It would be helpful for you. But essentially, it's this. God loves you. He, he's offering you complete forgiveness He's going to tell you the purpose of your life, who you are, why you're here, how to live. He's going to give you eternal life in a wonderful dimension. He wants to help you be who you were always meant to be and do what you're meant to do. You just need to return to your creator and trust. Will you trust him? He's pleading with you. He wants you to be reconciled to himself. He wants to see you have the highest quality of life a human can have. He's not against you. He is for you. That, that's one way you could communicate this message of reconciliation. Take, take it in. Now, here's what I urge you to do. Take this, replay the message, listen to it, or go home and try to find your own words. You must find your own words to, to be able to plead with somebody to be reconciled to God. You don't have to have magical words. You have to tell them essentially the message that I just gave. But if you don't really go home and kind of write it out and figure it out, you likely won't ever do it, nor will you be able to do it. I made the mistake of asking in the first service how many would be willing to go home and at least work on this and write it out. I'm not going to ask you guys, because I'm going to tell you, they were honest, but it was brutal. Hardly any were even willing to go home and write it out and try to put in their own words how they would approach a person to be reconciled to God. What I'll do is this. I'll tell you this. You are well able to do this. God's called you and equipped you. He wants you to be an ambassador of reconciliation. The only question is, will you... Will you take the time to figure out your words, your stump speech, so that you can do this, and you can do this. You can. It's only a question if we want to.
It says in Colossians 1 that God's reconciling not just humans, but even things in the heavenly realms. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. So it says he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You ever think about the holy angels in heaven that never sinned? You know, there's the two-thirds that stayed loyal to God, and they're having to watch all this evil run rampant, and God's not doing anything, essentially, and he's even blanket giving forgiveness to we humans. And it makes it look like he's saying, on the one hand, you can't have sin or evil at all because it's destructive, and God's not going to allow it. On the other hand, he's letting it happen, and they've been loyal, and it looks like their loyalty is being ignored, and God's not protecting them, and yet the sacrificial involvement of Christ it says it's settling all that those angels are like saying we get it now you've allowed evil for a little while so that you can eliminate it forever the early angels were tempted to sin and they did how can we be sure that in the future in eternity future the angels won't be tempted to sin again how can we be sure in eternity future we won't be tempted to sin again because of what God's allowing on this earth to happen. Listen, we said before, there's two big problems, two big problems that we have here. For, let, let's look first of all. What's the biggest problem in the universe? Biggest problem is, the dis, is distrust in Christ, our creator, and that produces, what's the next word? Disobedience to his will. All the crime, all the suffering, all the heartache, it all revolves, it all comes from this. So what does God have to do? How does he solve this? He can solve this problem in this way. Trust can only be restored through God's willingness to patiently, consistently, and gently reveal himself and demonstrate his trustworthiness. Satan slandered God, so now God has to prove himself, and he's doing that, and he finalized it in Christ and his sacrificial suffering. There's a second part, though, that has to happen. As well as God showing himself trustworthy, we humans becoming convinced of sin's inevitable destructiveness. How many of you have ever, you, you dabbled in some sin at one time in your life? You, you tried some sin, and you tried it because at the time it was fun, and then in time it was not so much fun, and you saw it brought destruction. How many have experienced that in your own life? I certainly have. That's how God is going to eliminate sin forever. To eliminate sin forever He's allowing evil for a little while so that we can see the damage that always occurs. And then we get convinced it's just like sulfuric acid. I couldn't tempt you to drink that sulfuric acid. God's going to let us learn this lesson in time. Letting those angels learn the lesson in time. They will never be tempted in eternity. We will never be tempted in eternity because we've learned the lesson. We've seen sin. Anything that's contrary to God's will, it's destructive. It's, it's sulfuric acid. We'll never want to touch it. We'll never be tempted. We'll have free will but we won't. And all this is accomplished through Christ. By his sacrifice, he's satisfying justice. He's giving a deterrent against sin. At the same time, he's able to offer forgiveness freely. He doesn't make it look like it's, it's a small thing when we break these laws of our, of our own being. Listen to these words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. It says, God our Savior, it's talking about Christ, if you read the verses before it. He wants all people to be saved, but what does it mean to be saved? To come to a knowledge of the truth, the truth about God, the truth about life, the truth about sin. It's not our friend. It's always our enemy. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, talking about the second coming of Christ. The Lord's not slow to keep his promise. He is not slow in the way that some people understand it. 
Instead, he is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. Instead, he wants all people to do what? Turn away from their sins. Why would he want us to turn away from our sins? Does he understand that this, this, some sins are fun? How many of you would just be honest? There's some sin, Randy, that's fun. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm, I don't care what anybody says. There's some sin that's fun. The scripture says it. It says there's pleasure in sin for a season. But man, when that season's over and payday comes, it's a rough payday. So God wants to save us from the things that hurt us. He's a father. He knows what we don't know. And he wants to bring us to that place where we agree with him. This, this is always destructive. Let me close. I've gone too long, uh, which is what I do. Uh, with a story of a guy that you've never heard of. We start out talking a little bit about who's important and, and who's not and that kind of thing. And um, this guy's name is George Lyle. Howard, even you don't know this guy. <laughs> well, maybe. Now that I think about it, maybe. Um, George Lyle lived back in 1750, so that makes it a little harder for you. 1750, he was born in Virginia, and he was born into slavery. That wouldn't make you feel very important. He stayed a slave, and then something happened 23 years later. At age 23, the message of Christ was shared with him, and he turned to Christ and became a Christ follower. It was in Georgia when that happened. The word of God gripped his heart and this message of reconciliation that God wants all men to be reconciled to himself, it started this fire in his heart and he started sharing it. He just didn't know any better. He believed he was called to be an ambassador of reconciliation. He didn't see himself as a slave. He didn't see himself as insignificant or inconsequential or powerless. No, far from it. He saw himself as God's servant and ambassador, a very important person on earth. He left the country and became the first missionary, first missionary of America. He goes to Jamaica in 1782. He goes there deliberately because he wants to reach the slaves in Jamaica for Christ. He gives himself into indentured servantship, which was at least better than slavery here, and he starts preaching this message. Within about five years, by 1791, he had 500 people that had turned to Christ and were gathering now in a church. By 1814, 8,000 people, 8,000 people. He lived to age 70, and he died, and he went to be with the Lord who he had served with such passion and boldness. You tell me. Was he important? And yet most of us in here have never heard of him. First missionary. He was a missionary 10 years before uh, Carrie went to India. Carrie is usually considered the first missionary, foreign missionary, but not this guy was. So, you are equipped, if you're a Christian, you are called to be an ambassador of reconciliation. The only question is, is are we willing to start developing our skills and ratcheting up our courage so that we can peruse our sphere of activity, you know, our friends and our family members and our work associates and the people we cross paths with, so that we can start pleading with them in various ways. Oh man, God loves you so much. Don't, don't throw your life away. Don't live as though nothing really matters but the moment. Be reconciled to Christ. Let me tell you what he wants to do with your life. He's going to show you who you are. He's going to teach you how to live. He's going to take away so much unnecessary destruction out of your life. Just trust him like I did. Let me tell you what he's done in my life. That's how you do it. That's how you do it, folks.
And so he calls us to be ambassadors. So as we close out, I just want to ask a couple questions. Have you fully understood this role that God says you and I can do if we're his people? That's one. Number two, this is the harder one. Are you going to start functioning as an ambassador of reconciliation? Because to do that, you're going to have to start figuring out how you're going to communicate. You've got a communication gift. You do. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It just needs to be simple and clear. The question is, will we start trying to use it? Let's pray. Father, you know each of us. You know exactly what it is we need to do to be better equipped to be your ambassadors of reconciliation. Some of us, we need to just sit down and figure out, write out our words. Some of us, we just need courage. We just need boldness. May you give to each of us that thing we need, that you, Lord Jesus, might be glorified and honored and that your passion for people might be released through us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.